Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series, book by book. I'm Mary, and in a moment, you'll hear from Allison and our two excellent guests today, Grace McGookie and Danielle Wetmore. Grace is an educator at the Tenement Museum, and Danielle, formerly of the Tenement Museum, is now an educator and public historian at the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation. Now, today we're going to be delving into Rebecca's world in the Lower East Side using the great interpretation and stories gathered by the Tenement Museum. Before we get into the episode, we just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge that the Tenement Museum is most known for histories of labor, and we're going to hear from two of its educators on the ground who have done so much research and offer such great interpretations. But the institution itself has also been linked to labor issues, and we just wanted to acknowledge our awareness of that. We do not get into that in this episode, in part because we wanted to focus on Rebecca's world. We also realized that the issue of exploitation at work and the very things Rebecca and Samantha protested are still with us today and often a part of so many people's work lives, especially in nonprofit or museum jobs with precarious funding. So all of these different jobs where people pursue history often have really fraught labor behind the scenes. We want to make a care and keeping of you episode to provide resources for how everyone can advocate for themselves at work today, whether you work in a museum field, history, or not. We'll be getting expert advice, and we want you to send us your questions so that our episode can speak to our broader community needs. So if you have questions about what to do to advocate for yourself at your job, please get in touch with us. We really want to be able to kind of provide what support we can for people in often really difficult situations. Um, So we think that's worthy of its own conversation. And please look forward to that conversation coming to your podcast feed very soon. Speaking of appreciation, we're so appreciative of Grace and Danielle. Can't tell you how much fun we had recording this episode. Their passion for their work And their just natural storytelling ability really came through in our conversation, and I've reflected on it often since we had the chance to chat with them. So with no further ado, let's get to our episode. So we are joined today by two uh, very special museum celebrities and experts. You could sort of say that this episode was brought to you by the letters D and G. Uh, We have with us today Danielle Wetmore, who is a former educator at the Tenement Museum and current program manager at Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation, which is wonderful rhyming, and Grace McGookie, uh, who is the lead lead educator at the Tenement Museum in New York. And I'll just say this has been a much requested topic to take a deeper dive into Rebecca Rubin. So let's hear a hello from Grace and Danielle. Hi, this is Grace. So happy to be here. And this is Danielle. I am thrilled to be here as part of this conversation. We're so thrilled to have you both here. Um, I think before we get into your expertise, just as an entry point, you know, this is subtle as a freight trainer, an obvious point on our show now that both Allison and I identify as Molly's or that was our favorite doll growing up. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourselves, like through American Girl, like who is your favorite doll? Did you care about American Girl growing up? Anything you want to share? I cared a lot about American Girl, but like from afar. Mm -hmm. Like I was 
so jealous of everybody who had an American girl. And I really felt like I made up a lot of rules as a child, like in my head that I made myself live by. Um, and for me, one of those rules was like, in order to like read the books, like you had to have an American girl doll. And mm. um, my family wouldn't get me one, probably because they were too expensive. But what my grandmother told me wasn't they're too expensive. Instead, what she told me was, you can't have an American girl doll because you're not American. You're German. Um, but wow. Maddie, my best Tough. friend across Tell the me. street, had like many American girl dolls. And so I would, like my access to American girl was really through Maddie. And I never really identified as with a favorite one because I, I felt like I, again, made up these rules about access to this. Wow. Way harsh, Grandma. Or I guess that was a creative choice, Grandma. (laughs) Somewhere in the middle, I think. There's probably a German word for that. Both of those (laughs) things at the same time. Yes. (laughs) Wow, that's really interesting. Grace, what about you? Different experience. I had two dolls uh, growing up, Felicity and Samantha, and I'm almost ashamed to admit that I was way more into Felicity no it was, shame it was why do you horses, feel shame it was the rebellion the independence <laughs> you know all are you it. a horse girl grace yep 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 sure am i love that for you i think you're the first self-identified horse girl we've had on the show so you're blazing a trail today thank I you i own that. it i own it um yes but had those played with them for like later in life than i want to admit and yeah, given the accessories, it was like every birthday and Christmas, I'd just get American Girl stuff. Or family members would make things for my dolls, like sleeping bags and stuff. That's really cool. So somewhere between sort of like your denial of American Girl and like sleeping bag embrace of American Girl, respectively, you two find each other and you work together at the Tenement Museum in Manhattan. So can you kind of give us that story and sort of like what got you from those experiences to there? I think just up top, it's important to note that the Venn diagram of people into American Girls and into the Tenement Museum is a circle (laughs) that's filled in. Like huge overlap there. Um, that and people like <laughs> myself who used to, you know, dress up as Laura Ingalls Wilder for fun. Um, so there's that. But yeah, we uh, at the Tenement Museum we talk about um, immigration and migration history in the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, from like the 1860s up till today. If we want to expand that a bit further, even going back to before immigration was a thing when it was... Um, a colony and the indigenous people here too. I also dressed up as Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I, wow. I don't know that Grace and I have ever spoken. Yeah, about we're going to have a conversation about that later. <laughs> well, like how, what was, was this because of the books or the show? The book. Books. Interesting. Okay, Allison and I like the show, so I'm not shaming the show. I'm just saying, I'm aware. I've actually There's never seen different the show. Danielle. I I tried watching it once, but I was excited because of the books and I had no idea what was going on. So I was like, this Mm -hmm. is, it was like that 90s show, like Beauty and the Beast or whatever, where like I tried to watch it and I was like, this is not what I'm expecting. (laughs) Yeah. It's very like 70s as much as it is 
an air quotes like pioneer story. Like everyone has a shag haircut. So I can imagine why it would be confusing. But I love that you both shared that. Yeah, I um, read the books and like loved like history books. So like I'm still actually like in retrospect really surprised that I never got super into the American Girl dolls books because in retrospect, I was like exactly who wanted to read those. But again, whatever. But I loved those books. I like would tr- I would beg my mom to let me like dress like go to school in like long dresses and I would like try to make them myself. How many bonnets did you have? <laughs> wow. I mean I didn't know what like my mom wouldn't buy me any. So like I made my own from like t-shirts and whatever. Whoa. Cuz my mom was a super tomboy and she was like what is your problem? Why do you want to dress up as a pioneer woman? Like <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I like, I learned on a field trip at one point that like pioneers took like um, sage and like rubbed it on their cheeks for like perf, not perfume, for uh, blush. And I was like doing that with anything I could find. My mom's like, can you stop rubbing like random things? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like it was all sorts of that. And then I think until I was in high school, I thought that paper was very expensive. Oh, yeah. So I read that <laughs> in some historic book. <laughs> Right. And so like the idea of like being able to like sustain yourself, like I had very romantic ideas of pioneer life, right? Like those ideas um, have, have changed through research over time. But I took that into like a love of history. I majored in history in undergrad. I then decided that I wanted to go on to grad school because I was like, I love history so much. And wasn't studying actually anything to do with like tenements or immigration. I was studying the Great Depression for the most part and sort of uh, gendered advertising during the Great Depression, but went to a panel that people, that the uh, university had put together. So I got my master's at the CUNY Graduate Center. And there's this panel of like, what do you do with a degree in history that's not teaching? Um, And there are a bunch of public history professionals and every single one of them talked about the Tenement Museum. And none of them worked at the Tenement Museum. And I never heard of the Tenement Museum. And so I was like, well, I should should go to that place. I should check it out. Um, And over the course of going and checking it out, I went on one tour and then was like basically told I had to work there. Um, The the woman who gave me my tour is Annie Polland, who is now the president of the Tenement Museum. Um, And there there was no turning back. In my interview, I was asked like, can you work here? For, can you commit to working here for a year? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and then I worked there for 10. Wow. Yeah, I thought of you yesterday, Danielle, because I got very offended at someone who didn't know who Frances Perkins was. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, Danielle and I started around the same time at the museum, but kind of for different angles because I heard about it through the costume interpretation program recommended um, by a friend uh, where it was like, you have to be Victoria. You have to, like, they're hiring Victorias now. You have to try. And then I went to the museum and saw a couple programs and been there ever since. I have to say, like, during my interview, I kept being told, like, you should be Victoria. And I was like, who's Victoria? And they were like, you got the look, honey. (laughs) Um, I never ended up playing Victoria, but there was a a lot of um, ideas about me being Victoria. And being Victoria... Just to try to, I'll try to summarize it, although I can probably write a 
thesis about it. Um, certain programs are costume interpretation programs at the museum, not all of them. So sometimes you might meet Grace, me as myself, an educator giving a tour, and sometimes you might travel back in time to 1916 and meet a 14-year-old uh, Sephardic immigrant um, and get to interact with Victoria. Yeah, Victoria Confino uh, came to the Lower East Side uh, in 1914 um, when she was 11 years old. 13, 13 1913. Oh, I'm out of practice. <laughs> 1913. I was like, man, this math isn't working out as I was saying it. Um, from uh, Turkey, which is now in modern day Greece. Uh, she was living in uh, Castoria before coming to the Lower East Side in one of our historic tenement buildings. Is she a real person or is she a kind of composite character like an American Girl character that was put together? She is a real person. Um, so we've been able to not only pull up you know, census records, we have her report card, um, things like that, but we're in touch with her descendants who give us a lot of oral histories and her recipes and things like that. So there is a degree of filling in blanks, certainly, but this is very much based on a, you know things that we know about the real person. And it's funny that you asked that because Danielle, when you were talking earlier, I was remembering like my I think first grade teacher, I was reading American Girls and I was like, is this real? And I didn't have the like fiction, nonfiction vocab yet. And she was like, yeah, that's real. And I was like, no, 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 is this book real? And my teacher was like, yes, Grace, it's real. So for a long time, I actually thought they were nonfiction. And I was like, it's funny that each character has the same, like, six <laughs> books, you know? Convenient how that worked out. So can you maybe tell us, I mean, I hate to out myself this early in the podcast, but I actually have never been to the Tenement Museum. And I hope you don't reject me this early in the interview process. It, it's making me excited to come there and visit you, at least Grace. Sorry, RIP, Danielle. Um, you're in California. But, you know, if I were to come there, your website's phenomenal, by the way. I just want to really recommend that. Love the digital exhibits and watch the video with Padma. would love to know if you got to meet Padma <laughs> for Taste of the Tenement. Um, that's a follow-up question, but it seems like when you come to the physical space and learn like space-based storytelling, like just traveling to different floors, you get to travel through time. Like, can you talk a little bit about how the museum is set up and kind of like what people can expect when they come there? Someone like me. I think we should answer this in two ways. And I just want to, um, sort of preface that before we get into more of it. Something to note is that at this moment right now, if you visit the Tenement Museum, um, 97 Orchard Street, the like uh, main- ex- First or flagship <laughs> building, right. The flagship building of the Tenement Museum uh, is what I really came to call it during many Zoom tours, um, is closed for restoration. It's being restabilized, which is exciting and a phenomenal opportunity. And so visiting the Tenement Museum right now is a little bit different of an experience than listeners who maybe have come even four or five months ago. Um, And so we can talk about both of those experiences. Both of the experiences are excellent experiences where you're going to learn a lot of things. They're just slightly different. Yeah, and there's also a lot that we've changed for many reasons, <laughs> COVID, but like you can also visit us virtually and take virtual tours. So it's like a site-specific place that has gotten less site-specific um, in the past like two years, um, very much so. So we have, like in 
right normal times, I guess, before times, we would give tours in two tenements on Orchard Street, um, 97 Orchard and 103 Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. We also would give walking tours and have different food programs available and special events and things like that. Um, because of 97 being closed down now, we've ha- we've created alternate spaces. So we've kind of taken the apartments out of 97 and put them elsewhere, uh, which has been interesting and a fun <laughs> challenge, I guess, an interesting um, puzzle. That sounds really tough. Yeah. Yeah, I was there for the tail, yeah. not the tail end, the tail beginning, the nose. I don't know, I whatever. The beginning of this process and it was really hard and sort of watching it unfold. Um, it's a lot of work to take down any exhibit, uh, but particularly exhibits that weren't built at once. Like it wasn't like we popped up one exhibit at one point. So 97 Orchard Street came to be in phases, right? People lived in the building from 1863 until 1935. In 1935, a law was passed and it said that everybody, all tenement buildings had to have non-flammable staircases. Uh, Spoiler alert, a staircase inside of 97 Orchard Street is made of mahogany. Mm. It's beautiful. It's flammable. It costs a ton of money to replace a staircase. During the Great Depression, no less. So the landlord closes the building for residency. Everybody has to move out. At that point, only seven families were living inside of the building. About seven, we think. Because of the Great Depression, many families couldn't afford to be living in these buildings anymore anyway. So these families had to move out um, and find some place else to live. The commercial spaces, so at this point, that's the ground floor and the first floor of the building, continued on. Uh, the Tenement Museum, when it was first founded in 1988 by Ruth Abram and Anita Jacobson, starts as being sort of one of these storefronts in this building and grows into the Tenement Museum, the nonprofit, being able to buy the building and create exhibit spaces there. The first exhibit spaces were on the second, or the first recreated apartments, not the first exhibit spaces, but the first recreated apartments uh, were on the second floor. It's uh, the Gumperts family who lived in the building in the 1870s and the Baldizzi Actually on the third floor. Yeah, and the Baldizzi family who- Also on the third floor. (laughs) Actually lived on the third floor. They're an Italian Catholic family during the Great Depression. The choice was to put them on the second floor, not the third floor, because the building had only been stabilized up to the second floor. Exactly. I was going to say what the last tour that we gave in 97, a colleague and I did um, before we started this restoration project, uh, was a very meta, like for museum members only tour, where we talk about like, look at the building itself, look at all these layers of wallpaper, but also look at the like silly dum-dum mistakes we as a museum made when we were like a baby museum in the late 80s, early 90s. And so the experience of visiting 97 Orchard Street sort of grew from that beginning, where it was like you would get up to the second floor and you saw the 1870s and the 1930s. That idea kept going, that rather than designing this museum as a standard historic house museum, where it's like, this house exists in the year 1918, because a tenement. And it's George Washington's house. (laughs) Uh, Legal definition of tenement. Oh, I was going to say, I was saving this, Danielle. 
Let's do that. Let's do this bit. Actually, Mary and Allison, I'd be curious what comes to mind for you both when you hear the word tenement. Yeah. What associations do you have with the word tenement? If you think about tenement in a word cloud. Hmm. Well, I don't know if this is, I, I'm not thinking about definition. I'm thinking about like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn or mm-hmm. books like that, that I've read growing up. I'm not sure if you're pro mm-hmm. or con that book, but anyway, that's my history with this concept. That's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. Usually we don't hear neutral responses to that question. Uh, it's a question that we often like to ask people who visit the museum. Sometimes it's more positive, like this book or, you know, Godfather Part Two or <laughs> Oh, nostalgia, old New York. Uh, usually it's more negative. <laughs> you know, it's, it's cramped, crowded, poor, all of this. But uh, as Gio was saying, the technical legal definition of a tenement in New York City is a building that houses three or more unrelated families. There is some fine print. They all need to have their own kitchens, which also means I live in a tenement. A lot of people in big cities do. Danielle lives in a tenement. We don't use the word so much anymore because over time they get pretty bad reputations. So that switch to apartment building was really on purpose. It was to get rid of that stigma, which is always kind of funny to me because we still use the word tenant. Just not tenant. Hmm, that's say really interesting. Not tenement. Yeah, tenement anymore. comes from the Latin root tenere, which means to hold. The idea was that it would these were buildings that would hold many people uh, because there was a realization that you needed buildings in urban spaces that sort of held more people, that building up mm-hmm. is useful. They come from a really, I think, exciting idea, but they didn't always work out exactly as intended, right? Um, lack of airflow ends up being a big problem. Capitalism, mm-hmm. big problem. <laughs> big problem for the tenements. Perpetual problem. Grace, did you say botulism? I said capitalism, <laughs> but botulism too, probably. <laughs> I went on a 40-minute rant about trachoma yesterday, Danielle. I can't, like, we can get into it if you want. It's fine. I was just like, I don't ever really think about tenements and botulism at once. I mean, why thought, not? Yeah. I think Allison actually has some questions that, I don't know if it'll take us to botulism, but it's about kind of like what tenements we're like at least in different time periods y'all cover, but would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think two questions that are sort of related that came from listeners. One was about the smell of a tenement, and I think that's come up a lot because we have some really great evocative passages in the Rebecca Rubin books about her sensory experience, and I know that you all work hard to do that in a deliberate way. And I think a related question that you two could answer is about windows. Someone was asking about the kind of curious visual they've seen of what appear to be windows on an inside wall and sort of how would that happen? Why would that happen? And those certainly seem to be related questions to me. So when I first started working at the Tenement Museum, luckily this was a a short-lived experiment and I appreciate why people were doing this experiment. but I also appreciate that it ended, um, was really trying to bring in like actual smells um, into the building. And so one of the first tours um, that I learned shop life, uh, we had like a mug of beer with a fake beer smell in it. And the idea was to pass it around. Smell- smelled like a dive bar. <laughs> oh my God. Floor. And like the idea oh was to like God. pass it around to visitors. So like, <gasps> like almost like a y- Yankee candle approach. Yeah, kind of. Well, different tours, like Victoria can can give you some smell, a smellscape mm-hmm. in a certain sense. But um, 
some of those from a museum standpoint were failed experiments. The like actual smells of things you can smell, I think, are very useful. Like if you meet Victoria, she very well will grind up some cinnamon and like have you smell that and like have that kind of that sensory experience. But for the most part on tours, we try to uh, use our words to explain the sensory experience. And really the time period that you're living in the building during is going to shift that sensory experience. So in the 1860s, when people first moved into the building, it was built in 1863, the streets were paved, but no one knew they were. You wouldn't know it, yeah. Because they were covered in so much horse manure, garbage, sanitation at this time. Three feet high on the streets. Hmm. Sanitation at this time was not a public service. It was a private service that you paid for. And most the residents living in tenement buildings don't have enough extra income to be paying for street cleaning. The landlords of the building don't have a lot of reason to do it because if they clean like the section of the street in front of their building, the other like the tr- waste is just going to move. Um, and so you really need speaking of smellscape, sailors apparently said that you could smell Manhattan from like a mile out mm-hmm. at sea. That is stunning and not in a good way. <laughs> wow. And so there's just there's just waste collected in the streets. This is manure. This is household waste. This is uh, coal ashes. This is like Car- carcasses. All of them. and what and what wasn't eaten by free roaming pigs <laughs> might be dragged into these tenement buildings. And so there's that part of the sensory experience, right? And also m- most buildings um, in the rear yard have outhouses. Um, privies, if you will. And some of them are connected to sewer lines, like 97 Orchard Street, um, and some of them are not. But whether or not they are connected to sewer lines, there is a smell associated with them because the toilets don't flush like per use if they're connected to the sewer line. They're flushed like once a week, every other week-ish. And so you have just human waste piling up outside in the rear yard. And so like, if you think about like a humid, July day in Manhattan, it's gonna be stinky. And so actually people liked to live on higher floors of tenement buildings because you were further away from the smells. So yeah, there are those smells that are um, very negative, but I also wanna be sure that we're highlighting positive smells. I was just gonna say, permission to go on a pickle tangent. Yes, <laughs> always. Always. So always 1860s, right? No sanitation. We got the outhouses. That changes, right? By Rebecca's time, early 20th century, 19 teens, um, there's new laws. So we have indoor plumbing to a certain extent, uh, things like that. Theoretically, the outhouses were not supposed to be used anymore. They definitely were. Uh, but there's going to be a different sense on the street. Um, So we, maybe not as much garbage, but far more people. Um, By that point, the Lower East Side was the most crowded neighborhood on the planet. On one square tenement block in the Lower East Side, there were almost 2,800 people. Um, And you can imagine all these people on the street, a hot, humid July afternoon. It's going to be stinky. It might be cut with the scent of vinegar. Before we get into pickles, though, I just want to say on that block with that many people, there were only 200 toilets. And 32 cases of tuberculosis. That's a no for me, dog. I don't (laughs) think so. Yeah. 
It's a lot. But yeah, on um, just about every quarter, though, by the 19-teens, there was a pickle vendor um, selling out of barrels, which at the time were seen as a very un-American food. Dietitians at the time criticized pickles for damaging people's nasal cavities and their urinary tracts in a people already so emotional they went too often to their doctors. (laughs) One of my favorite pickle criticisms is that Ludlow Street, which is a block over from Orchard Street, exhausted the cucumber crop of the eastern seaboard. But you could find all these pickles just about everywhere in the Lower East Side. And throughout the neighborhood, too, because of the immigrant groups that are coming to the Lower East Side and the surrounding neighborhoods, you also get spice shops that are cropping up in different areas. And so people are going to Little Italy. People are going to these different areas to find these different spices and to bring them home. And so you're walking through this building that for the most part, yeah, 97 is in each era of a not perfectly homogenous group, but- There are patterns. Yeah, there are absolute, thank you. That's the right word. There are patterns to who's living in the building. But there's always also other people. And so there are these pockets of different smells of cooking. And sometimes this is seen as exciting. And sometimes it's seen as difference to be called out, to be discriminated for. And sometimes you can't really smell anything except the coal that people were using in the stoves because that smell really gets on everything. So thinking of smells, you got manure. There's a lot. Got, you know, human (laughs) waste. You've got foods cooking. Oh, because even when we get indoor plumbing, theoretically, there were no showers or, um, you know, baths bathtubs with a water hookup in the building so right so it's it's a it's a big sensory experience (laughs) at this time i just wanted to share one of my favorite like scent memories from the oral histories you have on your site is i think it's josephine um an italian immigrant's husband who puts a um orange peel on the stovetop i think his daughter remembers to have like give the apartment a nice smell and i thought that was a nice smell kind of image to kind of conjure amidst all of these other smells. Although I also love pickles. So that's a great, <laughs> that's a great scent to have, I think, in your neighborhood. But um, that's, that's Absolutely. really evocative, all these great examples. Yeah, the orange peel, some of the earlier stoves even that were being mass manufactured in like the 1870s even had a special cup on top of it for putting orange peels or spices uh, to try to cover up all that. So we know that you can smell your neighbors, but people had a question about kind of collective aspects of living. And he talked about how tenements are kind of, you know, like we many people might actually live in a tenement literally today or by the technical definition, but may not think that. So I think part of what the question a listener asked was getting at when they asked about childcare and meals and kind of community within a tenement what what makes people have a sense of like mutual appreciation or community together and what separates that from just like a bunch of folks who happen to live in a building like what what kind of makes those different and and what sort of stories do you have at the museum about that difference i think there's something to that that goes back to an earlier question about um, interior windows also so there are many interior windows in these you know tenements of the era Some people call them tubercular windows. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, they're required by law um, in tenements in New York City. Uh, 97 Orchard gets them before, we think, uh, it was required. The idea is with more light and ventilation, it's going to stop the spread of diseases. 
like tuberculosis. I'll be honest, that sounded sillier to me before the last couple of years. Actually, ventilation is very important. That also means you're going to get to know your neighbors. <laughs> so uh, there's all these interior windows, not only within one apartment, but also maybe looking into an air shaft. And then across the air shaft is the next apartment. And you can really have a direct line to your neighbors. Um, for example, you mentioned Josephine uh, Baldizi, one of the people we talk about, and she has memories of turning on the lights on the Sabbath for the Jewish family across the air shaft. And similarly, a grandchild from that family would like sneak over to the Baldizi family apartment and have non-kosher <laughs> Italian food. Um, so there certainly are moments of those, you know, cross-community relationship building and moments of tension at the same time. The story of the Baldizis and the Rogarshevskis is our sort of our best story. Um, yeah, I'd say our best and most well-rounded story because we have perspectives from both families in talking mm -hmm. about their relationship. And there's, you know, a number of things that make that possible. One is that their families lived in the building at the end of the time period where people were living in the building and the kids were still alive when we were first becoming the tenement museum. Uh, that is no longer the case. They have since passed, but we have these, we have hours and hours and hours of oral history from Josephine Valdizi and also members of the Rogarshevsky family. We learned too, right, um, one of the grandsons who ends up living in the Rogarshevsky household, the one who's um, going to eat non-kosher food at the Valdizis, um, he also, his dad had passed away and he's living with his mom and grandmother. And so Adolfo Baldizi teaches him how to shave. And so thinking about mm. the familial relationships that in some ways are coming up, the Baldizis mm. also become very, very close with another family in the building, the Respizios, and they trade off godparenting duties from generation to generation. And that's true to today. There are also families who we don't, have oral histories from because they lived in these buildings earlier than we have access to 1860s hmm. 1860s that we have to sort of piece together what these relationships could have looked like based on things we have so we know um there's a lager beer saloon downstairs in the building we know that the German population brings lager beer to the United States, and that it's very, very common to have lager beer saloons. There's over 700 of them. On the also seen as very un-American <laughs> in the mid-1800s. And these saloons become places of community building. That it's, well, it's where you get your mail. <laughs> it's where the mail is delivered. So if you live in 97 Orchard Street, you got to go to the Schneiders to pick up your mail and then go upstairs. Probably you're going to get a, you know, Stein of beer while you're at it. It also becomes a place for um, for Rhines to meet. So for Rhines are um, social aid communities um, and clubs. And some of them are like fitness clubs. Some of them are political organizations, right? There are all of these different ones. And we know that John was the treasurer of... The Deutsche Amerikanische Reformverein. Yeah, the Deutsche Amerikanische Reformverein. And a part of at least two others. But there were spaces really not just to get beer, but you could get food, you could get translation services, get help drawing up legal contracts. Um, they become the kind of small indoor community 
centers for the neighborhood. And then if we go sort of more into the present and we think about 103 Orchard Street, we also have stories about people um, sort of engaging with each other, um, maybe in sort of less like familial ways, but in more sort of like, like we know of the size of Les Brothers trade off being the supers of the building. So they end up with these relationships in the building um, and they remember like, you know, the gifts the Wong family would give them for Chinese New Year and sort of these these ways in which you get to know your neighbors that maybe you're not best friends but you get to know one another and and it make, it makes a stronger community too i'm wondering if you see that also as a place where like collective action in terms of protests would be organizing as well i know that you got uh, your website talks about the kosher riots and our last guest actually was talking about that and sort of imagining like would bubby have participated in those protests and maybe taught rebecca kind of how to organize or how to protest or her other grandchildren. So I'm kind of not sure what you make of that, but um, would love to kind of hear what happened in those spaces. Where to begin? (laughs) Um, There have been lots of, I guess, like grassroots, primarily women-led protests that have changed things dramatically, um, usually for the better. Uh, And it's interesting to look at that generational thing because with the kosher meat boycott of 1902, the New York Times, not a fan. They have very colorful language describing these women, these immigrant women, and how they're not American and they're ignorant and all of this. The New York Herald was like, man, they're organized. <laughs> like, good for them. Like, they're really making it happen. Um, but that does kind of give birth to the next you know, generation with the uh, uprising of 20,000 in 1909 and leading into the labor movement. And that kind of leads into the suffrage movement and leads into the birth control movement. Um, so it's inter- it is interesting to think about those dynamics and what especially young girls are learning from their moms and what they're kind of taking away from these things that are happening all around them in the building, in the streets. And like, we don't have any records for our building of like a mom sitting her daughter down and explaining like what it was like for her to work in the garment factory and now her hopes and dreams for that next generation. And like, if I think about my own familial relationships, like I've actually never had like an intense conversation like that. Generally, those types of conversations have been like a little bit here and a little bit there. And like, you learn from watching. Like I know so many people who are like, I watched my parents or grandparents like have this work experience. And so I'm hoping for a different one. And so we can, we have to imagine that if we have that experience, like people in the past have also watched a previous generation and made different choices for themselves based on that. And we can see that in the labor movement, particularly that like the women in the kosher meat riot boycott, depending on which newspaper you're reading, or they're taking language from the labor movement they're like this is a they make it very clear this is a boycott in the way and then they're scabs right they're calling people (laughs) who are crossing the picket line scabs right and that's very much coming from that but then the uprising of the twenty thousand is very much women-led and like i can't say for sure they watched the kosher meat boycott and decided like we're gonna do this now but i bet there was at least for some of them watching their family members having done this and being inspired. And even thinking about a particular moment in time, like the uprising of 20,000 that happened in 1909, you you might take one family and everyone might have a different opinion about it, right? Like maybe the teenage girls are like, heck yes, we wanna do it. We wanna also like not be scabs to our 
friends that we're working with and maybe the dad's reading about it in the paper and is like ah you know and actually we can't afford it and maybe the mm-hmm. mom's like Ooh, it's not safe which it wasn't right people are getting arrested clara lemlick uh one of the leaders of that boycott had six of her ribs broken at different moments right and maybe the boys of of a family might not really care what their sisters are up to but as long as they're like out of the apartment it's fine um so there's also even those different attitudes that might happen versus even like what you take away from a big event like that. Yeah, a kind of related question we got from a different listener was about sort of general suspicion of young women, right? Like Rebecca kind of checks herself with not wanting to share immediately that she has become an actor, right? A lot of that is kind of like her own struggle with not wanting to feel like an outsider in her family and then kind of coming to terms, having to reveal what she does when she speaks up about the labor issue. But we got a really good question um, that was like both about sex work within tenement life and, you know, if there's like space to talk about that. But also, I think as you're talking like, the idea of my neighbor having a window that could shine a light into my living space is my worst nightmare, right? (laughs) Obviously, that is like a moment of like sharing and connection and it has a use, but also this idea of like possible surveillance and kind of like, is there an ability for you to talk about that at the museum? Absolutely. Um, We both do, that's for sure. (laughs) Or today, today, yeah. (laughs) It's, It's not something that I'd say like we make the choice to talk about on every single tour for lots of reasons, but it's absolutely a part of both the lived reality of tenement life and also outside perceptions of tenement life. So I think it's important for us to sort of cover both of those that, and and we have, there was a tour um, that is very like women focused. It looks like birth control and sex work and midwifery it's like the like women and 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 tour um (laughs) danielle and i helped create that tour back in the day and it's it was it's always been one of my favorite tours to give um because we're very frank in the marketing of it of like what it is you're going to be talking about and so you get groups of people who are primed to have conversations about like what does it mean to control your fertility and bodily autonomy um i think it's very important to be able to hot take (laughs) but that sex work is a reality um of people living in the building and for many women it was a real source of agency it was a way in which they could make money um in some cases while staying home right they could care for their home they could clean their home space and see a client at some point and the garment industry for example is highly seasonal so those factories where you're sewing blouses or whatever might only employ you for five months out of the year and you're only getting paid for that time right and so you have to figure out how to get paid the other times of the year and so like also you could put a curtain over your window like you have that ability to is that perfect no do many people do it yes and they're like Allen Street, the street behind 97 Orchard Street, or the street behind Orchard Street, um, is the elevated train went above it. And we have a former coworker who would say shady things happen in shady places. Um, and be, like, because the elevated, you know, did guard that space a little bit more. And so there were brothels that come up in that area. 
Um, and some of those women are treated very poorly and violence is part of that experience. And some of those women were able to make money to support their families in very important ways. And so all of these things are true. Um, and there are laws that end up being passed. Um, like one of the, the 1901 Time at House Act, which brings plumbing into the building, requires two, a toilet for every two families and a sink per floor. Hmm. Also says that like if a sex worker is found in your building, uh, the landlord is liable to that and will face punishment. And so it's this really interesting law where at some level they're saying, like, the researchers are like, hey, listen, sex work happens. We need to accept that it happens. We just don't want it to happen in family spaces. They were really trying to move sex work into brothels. The law doesn't end up really doing that. The law ends up criminalizing sex work for the women who are participating in it. And that also gives, like, makes room for things like the Committee of 15, where, you know, they, these, like, uptown progressives, yeah, they were like, yes, definitely sex work is happening all over. It shouldn't be happening in tenements around children, all of that. So what are we going to do? If we go to the Lower East Side and try to see if there's sex work happening, they're going to spot us from a mile away and know we're outsiders. So let's tap these 15 young men who live in the Lower East Side to go undercover and certainly not do anything, but definitely report on if there's sex work happening. Guess what? Sex work was happening. That was like the end of the report, pretty much. The committee was like, <laughs> don't know what to do about that. There are There is a fantastic book. If there are any listeners who are um, interested in learning more about this, Jen Frank wrote a book that I'm gonna look up the name of and I'm gonna tell it to you in a minute. I was just I was just looking at it. It's really it's a phenomenal book and it's not super long. Um, and one of her, the things she says in the book is she's like, yeah, so like all of these like 15 year old boys are writing like they took off their clothes and initiated wanting sex. I did not partake. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We really think that was happening. We really think they were like, ah, <laughs> uh, and no. Um, They'll be like, I stayed for about eight and a half minutes. <laughs> Just said hi to the lady and left. Sure. We had a colleague in graduate school who researched um, FDR's investigation as assistant secretary of the Navy into gay sex in Newport in the Navy. And basically it was a similar situation, if I'm recalling correctly, of men who worked for the government who went undercover to try to surface gay sailors and would have sex with them and be like, aha afterwards be like you're under arrest you're i'm taking you down and they'd be like but you did it with me and they were like no i did it because i love my country like right it doesn't count i found the name of the book new york undercover by jennifer frank and one of the one of the people she writes about in the book um is william lustgarden william lustgarden lived at 97 orchard street Hmm. son of a kosher butcher goes on to fake his own death oh can you say more about faking his own death? Oh, well, an interesting character. Yeah, he's part of the Committee of 15. Um, I found rather recently, Daniel, I don't remember if I told you this, the like report for the person who recommended him for this committee. And he was like, he's upstanding, best guy ever. Highly recommend. We have some of his reports where it's very similar of like, yes, I saw a sex worker politely shook her hand and walked away or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and then... Right, I marked the door in chalk, so go find that door. It's 
interesting, Willie <laughs> Lesgarden. Uh, he becomes a lawyer, and I think gets into some kind of fraud situation and um, insurance fraud, tax fraud, and then attempts to fake his own death to get out of it, gets caught, which is how we know he faked it. Um, <laughs> And gets in trouble for it. But also the Lescarn story is such an interesting story, right? It's um, during the time period of it's the, the Jewish East Side. They run a kosher butcher shop. Um, and he's the youngest. Their other kids are all girls. And so, like, the eldest takes care of the home while mom and dad are running the butcher shop. Then the next one becomes a seamstress. And so she's able to bring in some money into the household. That money allows the next one to go to more schooling. And she becomes mm -hmm. a trained nurse is able to bring in more money into the household so that William can then become go to law school. a lawyer. And I always wonder like how the daughters feel about like the trajectory of Willie's life. Because the oldest daughter couldn't even necessarily read or write English like fluently or capably, right? Because um, she's mostly at home. Yeah, it doesn't look like she was able to access school because she had to take care of her siblings. Hmm. hmm. That's really interesting. I'm wondering, this is sort of a hard pivot from faking your own death and sex work, but would love to actually talk to you about Rebecca. Um, so I'd love to hear from you about kind of how you think with the Rebecca books at the museum, or even just kind of like what you make of the Rebecca books in general with all of your knowledge from the museum. I think in general, it's an interesting comparison with the Samantha books, right? Where it's kind of, uh, you know, sometimes the museum will compare ourselves to like this other house museum that's usually about wealthy people this is like the flip side of that and i feel that way with samantha and rebecca as well um i know she gets into yeah the labor movement and strikes and things like that very important um when i come very clean i've never read the rebecca books but i've seen them because we have them at the tenement museum they were in the victoria dressing room now they're in my living room yeah grace <laughs> stole them uh temporarily wow I know, larceny. <laughs> but there were girls who would come to meet Victoria and bring their Rebecca doll with them. That was, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, there was a period of time where that was like really the thing to do. Um, and, but it would still happen um, after really like the peak of Rebecca coming out and like all of that. Um, but, and in many cases, like the way they would come up with questions, like before you meet Victoria, you have an educator who's with you in a room that's preparing you for this thing. Because what we're asking you to do at the Tenement Museum is a really weird thing, right? We're like, hey, people, come to the Tenement Museum and pretend that it's the past and talk with an actor who's pretending to be a 14-year-old Sephardic girl. And so you have to do some prep work because otherwise people because they're uncomfortable, are going to ask insane questions. And so you have to be like, so just, you know, gentle reminder, there's no electricity in this building at this time. Don't look at the exit sign. We're not going to ask about the exit sign. <laughs> but then also you're like, okay, this program is designed through conversation too. It's not like it's, people are also used to going to a show and watching something happen. But like, you do need to participate in some way. So there's this intro process. And for me, I loved it when I had a girl um, in the, you know, in my group who was like, I'm here with my Rebecca doll. And I could use that as a, a thinking mechanism to come up with questions for Victoria and that as a learning tool. 
And I think there's something really interesting, like for kids and adults with Rebecca and with to some extent, you know, different ways, but all the American girls of trying to balance like your family's traditions and your culture and religion and trying to be like a modern gal in whatever time, right, in New York City in wherever uh, that I think, I mean, Rebecca starts out uh, with really wanting to light the Sabbath candles. <laughs> But then, like, her actor, what, uncle, cousin, um, cousin, like, comes over, right? So it's, I think, navigating those pathways, too, and, like, finding your own role in, like, Americanization, whatever that means, but also within your family dynamics. So is there a book that you could recommend? Like, one I've been thinking about a lot in relation to Rebecca is Bread Givers, but is there another either, like, novel or first-person account that you could recommend for adult listeners who want to connect with like a Rebecca adjacent story, right? They can't make a trip out to the Tenement Museum right away. They've been on your website and there's a book that maybe you could offer up that would really help them kind of get into that headspace. The Irish Bridget, that's not more so Rebecca's time period, but like 1860s Irish women. I know, the five points, right? Um, But for, I mean, I know I'm blanking. I'm looking over my, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Like, I know all my books are still in boxes, but if you're looking for like really academic books, New York Undercover by Jen Frank, again, that's like probably not Rebecca's experience, but it's an excellent book. Um, Tyler Anbinder has two different books on um, sort of like immigrant communities. Uh, and so his first book is on, it's called Five Points and it's about the Five Points, um, a neighborhood in the 1860s. And then his next book, it's called something different, um, but it's like a, tome of a book it's very long um of like immigration to new york from forever (laughs) but it's also it's i mean it's very academic but it's very readable i would say i wouldn't encourage anybody to like sit down and be like i'm gonna read this at one go but like take the pieces you're interested in and he and he does a good job of balancing sort of like where he's able to find like first person accounts of including including some of those city of dreams what that one's called yeah, we have a couple books more specifically about Orchard Street, um, like Biography of a Tenement House in New York City, again, a bit more academic. We also have an edible history, so looking at the food traditions of different families in the Lower East Side, which is a fun angle, I find. Um, we also, and this has come up a lot recently on tours and in, in many different ways, um, looking at sanitation and diseases of the past like the flu yeah. pandemic of 1918 right around Rebecca's time um, and there are wonderful books about that as well and sometimes people find fiction or movies also weighs into these kind of time periods so I mean if are there movies that you guys think are fun even if they're not super credible let's say my joke is always and this is not only mine I'm sure I stole this from somebody um is that Gangs of New York is excellent if you watch it muted Oh, don't say that. I was so afraid you were going to say that. I can't handle the criticism. But visually, visually, it's pretty spot on. Visually, it's excellent. Like in many, minus the capes. There were no capes. Wow. I want there to be capes. I think it's okay. Wow. So wait, what is your, what's the, what's like the biggest problems with that movie? Well, okay. So Tyler Anbinder, who we were just talking about, Martin Scorsese hires him to be his like history person on on the movie and 
this okay this is me telling tyler and binder's story so this is also like a game of telephone but i've heard him tell this story probably 10 times so like anyway he's like yeah so i'm hired i get the script and i'm supposed to write on the script like anytime there's a historical discrepancy and what i did is i did that and i also offered like how they could fix it and he's like to scorsese's credit he like sat down with me and went through my edits page by page and he's like i had at least one edit on every page and on each edit scorsese was like cool i hear you i need it to be this way in the movie for this narrative reason and i'm not making a documentary and tyler Anderbinder was like cool yeah but you should you hired me to do this you should know it and so every single one he did that with except there's there was a scene that uh scorsese was like yeah we'll do this edit and it was there's a voting scene and you vote in bars at this time and tyler anbinder was like yeah you would vote with colored pieces of paper in big glass like vases jars and scorsese was like cool that has no narrative difference i will absolutely do that tyler anbinder is watching the movie it's very excited for his moment didn't happen oh that's sad that's sad for him wow I mean, just to follow up, like, did you guys get to meet Padma? Like, are you, were you expert consultants like Tyler? Kinda. So she, she filled, yeah, a taste of the nation and then came to our gala. We have an annual gala for like fundraising purposes. Um, however, Grace did not get to meet her. Caroline Schneider briefly did. So Whoa. for the gala, I was portraying Caroline Schneider, a German immigrant in the 1870s and saloon keeper for the gala. And that was when I got to very briefly meet. She was not impressed. She <laughs> Really? She was busy. Sure, sure. Sorry, Danielle, it didn't work out for you. But, you know, you can't win them all, I guess. We've also never met her. So I think that keeps I mean, us all in like, you know, humble and good company. But I did get to meet LeVar Burton once. Oh. oh my god I hope he was cool he was it was lovely okay. he actually he met Victoria <laughs> he did like a meet, right. Vic, reading rainbow meet Victoria thing when reading rainbow was like briefly rebooted actually maybe it still is on I don't know but yeah he was like anybody who's here like I'm happy to meet them um, so I, I shook his hand and he took a picture with all of us so when we told people that we were going to do this episode, they were so excited. They couldn't wait to kind of hear from people who have actually had the experience of working in a Rebecca type space. If people wanted to follow up with you in some way or had a question or just wanted to say thank you for the great content, would there be a best way to do that for each of you or accounts they should follow related to tenement life? I mean, if you want to follow account related to Tenement Life, I mean, the Tenement Museum has an Instagram, Twitter, Facebook that like I used to be involved with um, that you can follow there. I am not publicly very active on many social medias, but I am publicly sort of active on Twitter. Grace McGucky is my Instagram handle, first name, last name, or if, I don't know email you can email the lestm lower east side tenement museum at tenement.org uh, to get in touch i suppose i also now um am at the angel island immigration station foundation and we have social media accounts too excellent if that doesn't work for any of you just send a pigeon and i kind of feel good that it'll work out 
We still trust carrier pigeons on this show. We do. Um, We hope you can respect (laughs) that. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this great history. We so appreciate you sharing all your time and talents with us. Thank you. This was so fun. (laughs) 